0: Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer.
1: Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. Today, I am speaking with Ron Malachik, who is a partner at JM Search, an executive search firm that does a lot of work in the chemical industry and elsewhere. Ron has been in the executive search area for a very long time, although he did start his career as a chemical engineer, at least studied that way, and then apparently quickly jumped into helping people as opposed to helping chemicals per se. But anyway, we're going to talk about that and more. Ron, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Victoria. Wonderful to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Glad to have you. So let's just start with your origin story. How did you get into the world of chemicals and executive search?
2: So chemical engineer by schooling and graduated from Illinois Institute of Technology and joined the locomotive business of General Motors out of school. And it was a really fascinating time. It was just as the EPA began to regulate heavy-duty diesel So it required the manufacturing and engineering arms to start looking at regulations and other type of governmental requirements that they hadn't historically. So it was a great time to be around. It was also where I would say the human capital bug was planted inside of me because there was a significant amount that was taking place in terms of. The engineering and the manufacturing directly related to emissions compliance and the next generation of engine material. And so, with that, really had a cross functional role right out of school. And that was where I stayed until I ultimately moved into corporate planning and corporate strategy at uh, Exelon. And so, during my last few years at uh, Electromotive Diesel, as it was called at the time, Completed a master's of science in environmental management and then started my MBA at the University of Chicago, now Chicago Booth.
1: Awesome. That's really interesting. What I think is interesting is that your first two companies weren't really chemical companies. I don't necessarily expect chemical engineers to go into heavy locomotive, et cetera, at GE, but it sounds like there was a good connection from the environmental side of it.
2: That's right. There was a great connection. And it was also around the, I guess you can say, building the plane as we were flying. it. I mean, while the locomotive business had been around for decades, it was a time of transformational change. And that change ultimately lent itself to the locomotive business of General Motors getting acquired by a private equity firm. And that was also my first entry point into the world of private equity, more from being a business that was carved out and now was being stood up. And while I didn't have a front row seats, I was able to see the differences in certainly being part of a strategic corporate environment to now being a part of a standalone private equity-backed portfolio company.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine the difference between GE and independently. Own private equity firm, so strikingly different, I would imagine.
2: Strikingly different, but I think it also shined a light that there was a lot of untapped value, and there was also a lots of untapped human capital and folks that were excited about the expected future states, and in some ways, having a bit more degrees of freedom to drive that operational and ultimately that financial performance.
1: So how did you get into executive search? Because that's where a large part of your career has been. And obviously, it's a part of the corporate universe that you really love and thrive in.
2: Yeah. So like many, did not know much around how to get into executive search or even at that point, what the industry had to offer. I was brought into executive search by serendipity and good fortune. was recruited by a recruiter, if you will. And the more I went through the interview process and the more information that I gathered, it just seemed like this fantastic intersection of business strategy and talent strategy. And I've been in and around now Executive Search for close to 15 years.
1: That's awesome. And today you work a lot with chemicals and private equity. Is that right?
2: That is correct. Within JM Search, about two-thirds to 70% of our work, plus or minus, is directly tied to sponsored back vehicles. And as you might imagine, the last few years has been an absolute rush of activity. And then within that environment where, where I focus and where our team focuses is in the process industries. And so for me in particular, that's chemicals, materials, agribusiness, any type of process type manufacturing would fall under our team's purview.
1: Okay. So what everyone really wants to know is what the heck is going on in the world of job search, recruiting, etc. So that's something that people ask me. They're like, oh, you're talking to somebody that knows something about this. What's happening? What can you tell us?
2: Well, what is happening is a host of different factors, just a confluence of things. I'd say the first is, and this is irrespective of at the C-suite down to the individual contributor level, it's simply the most talented people, Victoria, have more options in front of them than at any point I can remember. There might be times previously where that was the case, but it is remarkable the supply-demand imbalance for the top talent. And so with that, the optionality that the candidates have is close to unprecedented. And so because of that, it's really placing a lot of focus and a lot of energy on companies as they are going to market for executive search. And this is irrespective of Public company, family owned company, sponsor backed company, in that the compensation continues to creep. I would say the benefits and other factors continue to creep. And that includes not just the target bonus, equity, things of that nature, but it's remote, hybrid work, having type of flexible schedules and things of that nature. And yet, against that backdrop, companies are having to move faster than ever. To identify and ultimately recruit that top talent without circumventing their own process or not doing the requisite due diligence. So it is moving faster than I can ever remember. And yet the top talent is typically sitting on multiple offers or close to multiple offers at any one point.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So, what is driving this imbalance? So, you mentioned this is a kind of a supply demand imbalance for search. Is this I've heard about people retiring, right? So is it that there is a lack of people? Is it people that have exited the workforce? Are there more job opportunities in the workforce or a combination of both? But what's really driving this, do you think?
2: In my view, it's a combination of those factors. I would say from the public company side, the world of private equity has attracted and retained a number of top chemicals leaders. Who in prior times or before the explosion of private equity, that would be the next generation of business unit and platform leader. And a public company would have an incredibly strong bench from which to draw. Much of that talent has gone into either private equity or venture, some type of sponsored back startup. And because of that, the public companies are having to get a bit more creative for their next generation. On top of that, you're also seeing the global macro factors that we all read about in terms of artificial intelligence, robotics, connected devices, cybersecurity, data analytics. And so what that means is these organizations are also looking for skill sets that they may not have had or may not have had in great supply. But yet, you can't lose that connectivity to the business. You can't lose that connectivity to what it means to be part of a chemicals manufacturer. So what we've seen clients do or what we've seen best-in-class companies do is, is several things. One is they do offer very agile career developments, whether that be taking technologists and putting them into different functional roles, Putting them into business unit roles and really allowing them in a short time period to broaden their skill set. We've also seen, and this is more at the graduate or entry level, but I think it does have many, many relevant applications is immersion programs. And certainly, Victoria, with where you've worked, the world of chemicals and just broadly processed industries is very complex. And if you didn't grow up, in a lab, or you didn't grow up as a plant manager, whatever the case might be, it can be a very scary proposition to walk into this very complex global value chain. So what we've seen companies do is they create these immersion programs to really help, whether it be STEM graduates, whether it be graduates who don't have a chemical or chemistry degree, it helps them to get acclimated to understand from a macro perspective, and then it allows the distillation down into micro or functional type of levels. And that then lends itself to, as we hear all the words around globalization, digitalization, what that means. Well, this allows the best-in-class companies to hire folks that may not have grown up in a chemicals company, and they've got the opportunity to immerse them as if they did. And so you can hire great data analytics or you can hire great cybersecurity, IOT type of talent, and you can take the skills they have and teach them how it applies to a chemicals or materials company.
1: Interesting. So do you see this happening at the private equity portfolio companies or is this more at still the global companies? Because my assumption based on history has been that a lot of the PE-backed firms are looking for people that already have that experience and expertise and pre-cooked, ready to roll. But is that still true? It's still
2: true. And much of it depends on the sponsor itself. If it is a bulge bracket, marquee private equity firm who is taking a big swing, of a big investment, then the most likely exit is going public and that time frame is going to be more compressed. But if you're looking at smaller to middle market private equity firms where their investment thesis and holding timeline might be 5, 7, 10 years down the road then there is an opportunity and certainly you can argue the need to invest in that type of interconnected talent but but you're right the global public companies have certainly been looking at avenues to bring in talent from different disciplines or to extend their reach into the best and brightest STEM graduates, and then distilling that further into the best and bright, diverse STEM graduates, and being able to offer that entry point, that ramp up point very early in their career.
1: Interesting. And I guess in some ways, maybe this is also filling the void that the middle management tier that's getting sucked into private equity it's a way of accelerating to fill the void. Is that what you see?
2: That's what we see. And from the public company side, as the large chemicals materials companies get larger and larger to leverage the economies of scale and really have that operational focus to sweat assets, it does create a byproduct, unfortunately, where what we call the training wheels, P&Ls, or the roles where you can take your truly... High potential, high performers, and put them into that first PL opportunity. And if they're successful, then you have the opportunity to scale them up and to offer them roles of larger reach, larger responsibility. But if for whatever reason it doesn't quite work out, in the grand scheme of the balance sheet, it's likely going to be a rounding error. And you have the opportunity then to implants the next P&L leader and P&L leadership just simply isn't for everybody. Some folks maybe are best suited or better suited to be functional leaders, but at least you have the opportunity to see where their skills match best with the company.
1: It's interesting. And I know you and I chatted about this previously, your whole point about scale, right? So it's oftentimes, and I certainly saw this when I was at Shell, the first time that you actually got to a P&L was a giant business. So where percentage error has a significant impact, as opposed to some companies which have their businesses broken into smaller P and ls, where, as you say, they're easier training grounds. If something goes awry, it's recoverable. You don't really see it. And so I think it's an interesting universe that we're in, just the way the majors have evolved. It really feels like a lot more companies or divisions and businesses are getting shifted into private equity to create that nimbleness, if you will and be able to extract more value.
2: No, that's absolutely correct. And it is both the research bears this out. And I think empirically we see this is that the most difficult transition an executive makes is going from that subject matter expert and individual contributor to now being a leader of people and a leader of teams. It's a transition that some can make and others can't.
1: So what are, do you see that companies are really looking for when they're going out looking for talent? we already said there's quite a draw on talent. What is deemed to be the most critical skills or experience today for leaders?
2: I think in many, it remains consistent, irrespective of capital structure. It is that bias for action, strong operational and financial focus, a results orientation But then it's one where I think some people understand it, maybe others understand it less, but it's followership. And the followership gets to the early parts of the comments around the best and brightest executives today have unbelievable amount of options. And parts of what draws that top talent to organizations is their leader or who their boss will be, whether that's the CEO, whether it's a business unit leader, whether it's a functional head, it really gets down to, is this an individual who is going to challenge me, who is going to push me, who is going to add tools to my belt that I don't already have, and is going to take some stretch opportunities and maybe half step promote me, then I'm ready for, but is going to give me the degrees of freedom and the autonomy to learn on the job and the course correct. Because as you said, if your first move is into a very large global p that can be incredibly overwhelming. But if you have an incremental step in between, I think it does help make the transition a bit easier. And it keeps that confidence level high.
1: So the great reshuffle; a lot of people have moved roles. I saw some interesting statistics recently, and I'd like to test you on this. So this is—I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here. I genuinely want to hear your opinion on this. So I saw this data recently from a company called BetterWorks, and we'll link the study in the show notes. Basically, where about counter offers? So you know, when somebody's leaving the company. They come and they say, hey, I'm hitting the road. I'm moving on for a different offer. Now, I think there's different schools of thought on whether counteroffers work and whether they should be done, right? So some people would say, once somebody's made up their mind, they've made up their mind and they move on. And others say, well, maybe there's a chance to keep them. But what was interesting was men in this study, and they had basically equal proportions of men and women that were in this study, men were like 17% more likely to receive a counteroffer. And if they received a counteroffer, It was 30% more likely that it was a financial counteroffer, whereas women were more likely to receive kind of the soft benny's counteroffer. What do you think about this, Ron? Based on experience, what's your interpretation of that? Because you obviously work with both parties. You're working with the candidate and you're working with the company. What do you think about this? Well,
2: there's a lot to unpack there.
1: There's a lot to unpack. I'm putting you on the spot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Again, the research that we've seen and some of the studies that we've either conducted or we've had access to shows that at the margin, 70% of executives, plus or minus, that accept the counter offer, they ultimately do depart their company within 12 to 18 months. So I think in one hand, the financial incentive that is offered at the time feels great or might gloss over why he or she was looking outside in the first place. But I think in the longer run, the same issues or just the same unhappiness will continue to manifest itself. And What is interesting, though, and and this maybe ties back into not only of late, when we think about the great reshuffle, when we think about the pandemic, the great resignation, however one wants to classify it. I think if anything, Victoria, what it's allowed is it's allowed executives much more time to reflect. We're all very busy. We all have day-to-day responsibilities, and then we have medium to short-term, long-range planning, what have you. But I think it's it's really gotten to time to reflect what is my purpose, what has value, what has meaning to me. And I think specifically for the STEM and millennial generation or the millennial STEMs, if you will, it really is want to have a sense of pride, want to have a sense of ownership and impact, but more importantly, also working for a company that feels the same way about those issues, that espouses those values, has a very similar corporate ethos. And that is something we have seen quite regularly here over the last 18, 24 months. And it really has become a driving force of getting those best and brightest STEM graduates interested in the organization. And my viewpoint, I know this is a, a chemicals podcast. So to me, The chemicals industry offers that cradle-to-grave impact around ESG and circularity and just trying to have an impact at each step of the value chain from that raw material exploration and production all the way to the consumer. And so that is where, as the chemicals industry continues to rebrand, or continues to refocus, it has such an incredible opportunity to reach these graduates. Again, some folks may enjoy building apps or doing things of that nature, and that's all well and good. But I think there's a high or at least a good percentage of these STEM graduates, these engineers that like the product, that like the manufacturing, like to see what the end state could be and how ultimately these products meet the addressable market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do think there's this aspect of the tangibility of it, right? That some individuals... I know I certainly felt that way when I spent a big part of my career in and out of polyethylene and polypropylene. And what's nice is at the end of the day, you could feel what you produce. You could go look at it, see it, touch it, which you can't do with some of the chemical products. But you also can see, for instance, when I was in the surfactants business, I love the fact that I could say, oh yeah, your laundry detergent, your shampoo, your whatever is made of our product. So maybe you don't know that, but we're feeding and providing and supporting kind of just better life, right? When we think about kind of the whole corporate value and the importance of that when people are looking at roles, do you see that more with the millennials? I'm working with a very young executive right now who's re-strategizing her family's company business for the next generation. And that's one of the things she's had very clearly is I want it to connect with my personal values and my peers' personal values So I guess the question is, do you see that more with the millennials or do you see that across the spectrum of the clients that you work with?
2: I would say we still see it larger with the millennials, but in some respects, Victoria, even the companies that may be, let's say, indifferent about ESG or some of these other topics, the market is forcing their hand. And some of this is simply, there is an increased pace of change in innovation and a shorter time to commercialization and trying to strike the right balance from a chemicals product development perspective around now versus next. And the companies that we've worked with, our clients and prospective clients, best in class in the industry they have earned the rights to partner and innovate alongside their customers. And in doing so, they're able to explore these opportunities together. And in doing so, that allows the chemicals companies, the formulators, the intermediaries, they're able to improve their product development efficiency because they're getting a bird's eye view of what's happening to their customers' customers. And so with that, many of the chemicals companies are now focusing more of their efforts or their talent efforts on having a more well-rounded product development leader, a more well-rounded R&D leader. And there's many chemicals companies historically that they thought of themselves as business partners first and functional experts second. And that is the mentality that we continue to see winning more in the market.
1: Interesting. What about the talent pipeline? So, I mean, I think we've talked about this a bit. For a long time, there was concern that there just was not enough talent to fill the pipeline. Do you see that? Is that still true today?
2: It is still true, particularly when you're looking at the transition from where the chemicals and just where the broader industrial market was to where it's going. And that is where we continue to see the reskilling of talents and the redeployment of talents, where organizations are getting a bit more creative in their agile talent developments, or maybe said in a different way it's one thing to recruit the talent, Victoria, and to get them in, it's another thing to retain them. And the best in class chemicals companies that we see have a very robust and in some ways, even a fit for purpose, tailor-made type of talent development roadmap, where the roadmap you take for somebody with a PhD in chemical engineering might be different than somebody you take with a bachelor's in data analytics. But yet when you're looking at that end point, you need both of these respective individuals in this hypothetical case to get to a similar point. But how you train, how you skill, how you put these executives into various roles to develop them is different. And so it's that level of agility. It's that level of cross-functional pollinization, right? As you and I talked about before, when you work in a global chemicals environment, much of your leadership is by influence and by internal stakeholder management, And so the earlier in one's career, he or she can learn this and then really see the benefits of having that type of internal stakeholder management, the better they're going to be.
1: Does that hold true in the PE-backed firms? In my mind, they're often smaller. I suspect that the dynamics are a bit different.
2: The dynamics are different simply because there is an expiration date to the transaction. And in many cases, the smaller to middle market private equity firms, the carve-outs that they are investing or the businesses that they're acquiring from larger strategics tend to be more geographically siloed. While their customers are global and they may have sales distribution offices in key geographies, the manufacturing and the real center of gravity tends to be in a specific geography.
1: All right, Ron. So when individuals are looking to make a change and want to be recruited and want to be one of those individuals that has multiple offers waiting for them, what can they do to be more attractive to employer?
2: It's a great, great question. And I would say there's a few things. The first is have as broad of a product and application experience as the organization allows, because we continue to see that, to use the phrase, that cross-pollinization into different industries, markets, and applications. When you look at the chemistry and the molecules, there's a lot more similarity than differences. And each respective market or industry vertical may have its own subtleties or idiosyncrasies, but there's a lot more in common than not. And so bringing that broader products and market experience is going to make one more attractive, particularly as you think about the high margin, high growth, high touch industries that do require some immediate credibility. The second would be really identify what are the core strengths and competencies, maybe said simply, what excites you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? And for some folks, it might be that drive to be a CEO. For others, it might be to lead an innovation stage gate process and certainly a host of things in between. But I think it's almost reverse engineering where you'd like to be and then identify, and that goes to having a very robust network, identify those three to four or five very senior leaders. That are either the identified experts in that field, in that product category, in that application category. And if you have a chance to meet them, know them, great. If not, then find mentors who have a similar skill set and are seemingly seen as leaders in their function and just spend time to understand what were the opportunities that really challenged them? What are the roles that really paired them to get to that step? And I think along the way, You also then learn that very valuable step of leading through others and leading through people because you do reach the point, again, in private equity, it's going to be a bit more hands-on for the CEO, but you're ultimately still the chief growth and the chief culture, chief people officer. And so that requires the broader your functional skill sets, the more that you're able to understand what the different functions are dealing with, what the different business units are dealing with. And you can become a problem solver. And ultimately, you could become a hurdle remover.
1: Makes sense. All right. Now, on the flip side, how can companies be more attractive to candidates? Given that it's a seller's market, how can companies be more attractive to the candidates that they're trying to get?
2: Again, wonderful question. Part of this goes back to our earlier comments where it is having that purpose-driven culture. And again, for us and for most of the listeners, I would imagine of this podcast, it's going to be through that chemicals materials lens. And that's where to me, the chemicals industry does offer a true closed loop recycling, closed loop manufacturing paradigm. And you really do have the opportunity to create that type of self-sustaining manufacturing
1: process really leaning in on sustainability and stuff. Absolutely.
2: And part of this is customers are demanding this of the products or customers have much more than just a passing interest in the history of the energy of the carbon footprint, really understanding the products that they use, the products that are consumed. So in that way, the chemicals industry does have a decided advantage because from start to finish, there is some type of chemistry. There's some type of molecule development. There's some type of application footprints that is, is going to be derived back from the raw materials. And we've seen this. It's certainly not anything novel now, but companies releasing their sustainability index, their sustainability report, having the Dow Jones Sustainability Index or the FTSE for Good, whatever it might be, there are enough agencies out there now that bring that credibility and that data metrics-driven approach to really, in some ways, put a scoreboard. And where we're working, what we're doing our personal lives, we like to win. And it's always great to see the winning side versus the non-winning side. And so with that, the chemicals industry does have an opportunity to continue to position itself. And it'll be interesting to see what transpires here over the next five to 10 years. And obviously right now, very, very large institutional shareholders are demanding this in some ways. And we're seeing funds that are created with this type of ESG investment methodology. So where that goes in the future... I don't think my crystal ball is that clear, but I think in some capacity, it's here to stay.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. Well, Ron, this has been awesome. I appreciate you joining us on The Chemical Show. Thanks for sharing your time and your insights.
2: Thank you so much, Victoria. It is wonderful, the forum that you have here, and just really excited to be a part of it.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks everyone for listening. We will see you next time.
0: We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.